to you, Father, we come as our sovereign king, as the one who has chosen us from eternity to spend eternity in your presence. And Father, as we live this interlude here, we desire that your spirit will, in, will not only strengthen us, but teach us and empower us to live for you, to be the men and women that you have called us to be. Lord, there are many people in our, around us each, each day that do not know you, and our role is to minister to them in whatever way we are able to, and through the power of your Spirit, to touch this world. And Father, we pray that as we study from this particular passage of Scripture today, we will, re we will receive instruction from your Spirit that will enable us to better serve you, for our faith to be strong, our hope to be high, and our commitment to be deep. Lord, we ask for your special blessing throughout the Sunday School this morning. We pray for the other adult classes uh, that are meeting, uh, many of them with leaders that at one time have been part of our fellowship. We think of Larry Haight and his wife and, and the group that's meeting next door, and, and we think of the fourth graders where uh, Mike and Corey are this morning, and, and many different classes today where members of our class are now ministering. And we trust that your presence will be there. And you'll bless the service that is going on right now, too, that God will be glorified. In the name of Christ, amen. If you'll turn to the 49th chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49. Last week we spent some time with the prophecy concerning Judah, and I would like to finish that this morning and move on to the prophecy concerning <laughs> Zebulon and Issachar. Jacob, in the closing moments of his life on his deathbed, as it were, is giving a prophetic statement concerning his 12 sons. And we have been looking at, in detail at uh, Reuben and then Simeon and Levi. And today, as I said, I'd like to complete the study of Judah here. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth are white from milk. We were looking at the 10th verse, the verse that deals with the political power that would come to the tribe of Judah in the years really after the invasion of Canaan and the settlement of the land. And I noted last week, and uh, I forget if it's on the outline you have in front of you or the one before, but the fact that Judah was chosen by God to be the tribe that would encamp directly east of the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was the place of honor. Judah was the tribe that would lead Israel into the conquest 
and Judah would be a tribe that would supply some of the judges during the period of the judges. But the, the, the period in which Judah would really come to this political leadership role would, of course, be the period that would begin with the united monarchy under David and then under Solomon. Now, the question that we were dealing with at the end of class last time was, who was Shiloh? Because the scripture here says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And I mentioned to you last time that the term Shiloh in every other instance in the Old Testament refers to the town of Shiloh. Today, if you go to Israel, there, there's just basically a barren hill north of Jerusalem, which was the site of Shiloh back during the time of ancient Israel. But that was not a particularly significant town. The only significance of that town was that the tabernacle was placed at Shiloh during the period of the judges. And then ultimately, of course, during the time of David, it was, it was moved into Jerusalem. But other than that, what is Shiloh? What was Shiloh? Shiloh was just a small little village. It had no other real claim to fame. So certainly, when it says until Shiloh comes, it does not mean the town. And then I gave two possibilities as to specifically what this referred to. First was that the term Shiloh is closely related to the term Shalom. And so some have interpreted this as meaning until the man of peace comes. And some say, well, the man of peace, that was probably Solomon. Solomon was the man of peace, right, who had the right and the power to go ahead and, and uh, build the temple. David couldn't because he was a man of war. But Solomon, Solomon was, yes, a man of peace, but we're talking about the prince of peace here. There's uh, almost no doubt about the fact that the greater man of peace is not Solomon, but is or will be the Messiah when he comes again for the second time. And we read those passages in Isaiah. Or, as if you have the new international version, the NIV, they have directly translated Shiloh as he to whom it belongs. And so you read there, nor the ruler sh uh, staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs comes. And that is a, the New International Version, as you know, is more of an interpretation of ideas rather than a literal interpretation of the Hebrew words, which the NASB is, which we've been studying from. Uh, I've been teaching from anyway. The, uh, so, so what we have is kind of a, an interpretation here in that passage, and I think it's a correct interpretation, and, and then NIV does this over and over again as you go through uh, the scripture with that particular version. And so it's really kind of good to take the NASB and the NIV together and study them, because then you have the literal and the interpretive side by side, and because the interpretation is generally, I believe, done from a very conservative point of view, it, it is, uh, I believe, very accurate. We looked at the Ezekiel passage uh, where the term is used, again, not the word shallow, but he to whom it belongs is, is used. In that passage, as well as this passage, almost certainly are messianic in their orientation. Now, what has been the historical approach to this? Well, the ancient, uh, or the early Hebrew, ancient Hebrew commentators and the early Christian commentators, when they deal with this passage, without exception, they consider this a passage that was predictive of Messiah. 
And so for us to interpret it that way is to fall in the vein of what has been basically the, the way of interpretation. Now probably many of you are aware of the fact that beginning in the 19th century, specifically in the 19th century, there has developed a school of interpretation that is very liberal in its dealings with scripture. Uh, it, it, used, it basically began in Germany and carried over into this uh, country. We had a, a very strong vein of it. it. The roots of it were in the Enlightenment in the late 18th century where you know, more and more man becomes the measure of all things rather than the kind of uh, close-eyed faith that some would say many Christians have. And in, in that case, they begin interpreting these things as uh, you know, passages like this, any enigmatic passage becomes interpreted in the most liberal human sense. And of course, the whole book of Genesis is thought to have been the the, the product of several different writers that was kind of all pushed together uh, and, and it's not thought of uh, by those who follow the uh, more modern liberal ways of interpretation as having been authored by Moses. But scripture says it was authored by Moses. I believe and I trust you believe was authored by Moses. The passage is referring to the Messiah. Because of the context of the passage in chapter 49, there really is no other alternative for interpreting that passage as referring to Messiah. God, in his eyes, the rule of Israel, remained with the tribe of Judah until Christ was sent into the world. And although Christ was sent into the world as a baby, and he grew up to, to be a, a prophet and, of course, our Savior, he, he exercised no political power in the days that he was here before. But, of course, within the concept of the coming of Messiah is the second coming of Messiah, in which he will come as King of kings and Lord of lords. So, the reference, until Shiloh comes, combines the first and the second advents together. When he comes as the child and as the Savior, and later when he will come as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He who rules those who trust him now. He who will rule during the thousand years of the millennium. And he who rules throughout all eternity. I would like to read from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah is very near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Greatly rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river, which means the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, many decide to interpret this kind of a passage totally in a spiritual form, particularly those who happen to uh, adhere to the amillennial approach uh, to Scripture will interpret almost all of these passages as, as purely spiritual in their meaning and intent and that there would be, is no literal meaning to it. But certainly those who hold to the premillennial interpretation of Scripture 
will understand this as referring to the time when it says in this passage, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, I will, and the horse from Jerusalem. We're talking about the end of political power uh, as far as the nation of Israel is concerned. And of course, uh, Ephraim referred to the northern kingdom and it was destroyed clear back in the 8th century before Christ by Assyria. And, and then the, uh, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, Judah, Judea, was uh, conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century, but then returned to power later, but nevertheless was out of power for 2,000 years, as you know, that his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates. I mean, if you're going to spiritualize it, why, why talk about a river that everybody knows about, Euphrates, uh, to the ends of the earth, referring almost certainly to the millennial reign of Christ. And then in Micah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, May, uh, Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 2, a passage that is generally read at Christmas time because the reference to that at the time the wise men came and uh, the priests gave to Herod the passage that talked about where the king would be born. Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going, goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they will, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great. To the ends of the earth, and this one will be our peace. Again, we're talking about the first and second advents of Christ in, in this particular prophecy uh, in Micah. And, and the first part of it deals specifically with Christ coming to be born in Bethlehem, and then the latter part deals with the second coming of Christ and his reign on earth, and then his eternal reign. Now the last phrase, or the last, I shouldn't say the last phrase, the last line of verse 10 in Genesis 49 says, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is probably a, a passage that has both a temporal and an eternal aspect to it. The temple may refer and probably does to the scepter of Judah as it would be displayed in the reigns of David and Solomon. David and Solomon would carry the power of Israel to its greatest height in ancient history. The Davidic kingdom would stretch from the Euphrates River all the way to what is known as the Brook of Egypt, which is not the Nile, but a wadi there in the Sinai Desert. And, and this would be the great extent of the David-Solomon Empire. And the surrounding peoples were all either literally directly conquered or were brought under the hegemony of Israel under David and Solomon. And so this is probably what is referred to here in the temporal sense, but in the eternal sense, it refers to the reign of Messiah, the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 49. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his robes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. These passages of scripture have got to be looked upon as referring to literal as well as to spiritual concepts. Christ will rule and reign as he does in our hearts today, I trust, literally on this earth for a period of a thousand years. And certainly that is implied in, in these passages. And there is then also a literal, non-messianic implication too. But I'd like to touch upon the messianic implication first. In Psalm 2, I'd like to read a few verses there from the second Psalm. Psalm 2, beginning at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage, or as the King James Version says, kiss the sun. And, and the Old Testament concept in Hebrew of kissing was to bow down in utter abject uh, uh, submission to the one, to kiss toward this one of great honor and great power. Do homage to the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. There's some rather discomforting ideas that are taught here in Scripture relative to Messiah. There are so many today who want Messiah to be gentle baby Jesus, who want to be him, him to be meek and mild and to smile on, on all of us, you know, sinners, and to just say, well, you know, I understand, and you, you can't help it, and, and all of this kind of thing. And, and many today... As you know, in, in many of the denominations of the United States and around the world, they, they, they preach a bloodless Christianity. They don't like the idea of the blood of Christ because it's kind of somehow gross, you know. And uh, what they do is, of course, strip it of its power because Christ is not only the, the, the gentle Jesus, but he's the mighty king. And, and he's the one that we must prostrate and bow before because his wrath will soon be kindled. Now, I, I, I don't know that we necessarily want to view Jesus as, my, as Michelangelo did as he painted the rear wall of the Sistine Chapel those many years after he had completed the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And, and, of course, he went through his own spiritual evolution as, as he went through this process. And he paints this final panel on the back wall of Jesus coming in his wrath. And, of course, the Jesus he paints is very much a, a fleshly Jesus in the typical Italian school of, of painting, but, uh, you know, all the depiction of people being horribly destroyed in hell. Well, you know, it, there, there's some truth in this. Let's also turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called 
the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think it's extremely important to study Scripture as it is explicitly stated. And I think it's important for us to have a faith that is well balanced between the merciful God of heaven and the God who demands righteousness. Because the, the ultimate expression of love is justice. And of course we are depending upon His mercy to mitigate his justice so that we might become the children of God. But those who don't turn to his mercy, what do they face? What is there to face but the wrath of God, the justice of God? And so we must be sure that we keep a balanced understanding of what the Scripture teaches and we don't become so unbalanced in one way that we either have a God who's up there just trying to strike everybody dead, you know, like Zeus of old, or, or nor a God who just winks at everything and pretends like it's all okay down here. We need to have the balance that Scripture proclaims. As we look at the picture painted in the 11th and 12th verses of the tying of a donkey to a grapevine, what, what this does is symbolize two things. It symbolizes royal power and it symbolizes peace. The donkey was a symbol of royalty in the ancient Near East. Now most of us have this joking idea of a donkey, you know. This donkey is a dumb animal that doesn't know how to do anything right, and who would ever want to ride a donkey anyplace if they didn't have to, you know. But I think that's an inappropriate view of the animal. Uh, the donkey, I believe, is, is used in this particular passage, first of all, because the horse throughout Scripture tends to be associated with war. And the donkey is associated with peace. I mean, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, not on a, you know, a yearling horse or something, not a prancing white uh, charger, as all the great heroes of history like to be portrayed on. You go to South America and big statues, equestrian statues of Simon Bolivar or, or San Martin or one of these individuals riding high on a big horse, you know, or go over the battlefield of Gettysburg and there's... There's um, Robert E. Lee and one of the greatest equestrian statues in the whole United States. And, you know, it's, it's a symbol of power and authority. And, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's not because in that moment he was expressing humility, uh, but the donkey was the symbol of royal power in the ancient Near East. The donkey is actually a more trust, trustworthy animal, I'm told anyway, <laughs> than the horse. And, and the passage in Proverbs that I have there may be interpreted that way, and I suppose it, the, the Scripture says in Proverbs 26.3 that a whip is for the horse, but a bridle for the donkey. And th that could be interpreted as a horse needs more uh, force applied for it to do what it's supposed to do than the donkey, which will just be guided. Now, of course, our view of the donkey is that it'll stop and not do anything, and you have to about hit it in the head with a tuba for it to get it to go uh, sometimes. But uh, a well-trained donkey, I guess, is, uh, is a good animal. But the donkey definitely is more sure-footed. 
If you've ever been to Israel, you know it's a very, very rocky land. And the old trails in those days weren't highways. They were just trails through the rocks and over the hills. And a sure-footed donkey was a better animal than a horse in the mountainous terrain. And of course, easier to sustain because a donkey will eat on relatively sparse vegetation where a horse requires a greater amount of bigger animal. But what is interesting about this, I think, in part is that the donkey is of the same genus as the horse, Equus. Equus Asinus. The donkey was first known in North Africa. And there is a scriptural reference to it in its early years of, of human contact. In Job, chapter 39. Job chapter 39, beginning at verse 5. What, what we're talking about here is not little burro. <laughs> we're talking about a wild onager. Uh, what you would call a stripeless zebra, in effect, is what we're talking about here. Who sent out the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city and the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Here you have a picture of a wild and free animal. And as best as we know from the ancient tomb art of the Egyptians, the early donkey was just that, basically a stripeless zebra, what they called the onager. And, and the little scrubby little burrow that you think of as creeping through some mountain pass in Mexico is, is, is a, you know, kind of a hybrid down through the centuries that, is, that doesn't quite match its wild and strong ancestor in the wild onager. It apparently was first domesticated by the Egyptians about 5,000 years ago. It became popular in Palestine for the reasons I've already mentioned. It's a rugged country and, and it was a better animal to use in a rugged land, whereas Egypt down in the valley is relatively flat and the horse can move with a chariot at great speed across the land and that's okay. But you get in a wild, rocky, rugged land, a donkey is a far better animal to use than the horse that Judah would be able to tie his donkey, literally ass is of course the long-term English word for this animal, to a vine represents the idea of peace. He could just tie his, his donkey up to the vine and he could sit under the vine and enjoy himself. The idea of sitting under a vine is an Old Testament concept of being at peace. So he ties his donkey to the vine without any fear of either fight or flight. There's peace in the land. There's peace in the land. And he could be at ease in the abundance of his inheritance. And Judah would be an abundant land at one time in its history. Most of us, are, of course, are accustomed to it today. And we, if you've been there or seen pictures of it, it seems to be barren and rocky. And, and if you, you see a few little Bedouin tents here and there. And, and you get this view that, why would anybody want this piece of land anyway? And, and we don't realize that at the time of the conquest, it was largely a forested land. It was a land that was well cared for. We're looking at a land that suffered through 1,500 years of neglect with the destruction of the Jewish people and, and their ejection out of the land and the land ultimately be coming under the control. First it was under the control of the Greeks, of course, but then it came under the control of the Arabic peoples and the Arabic peoples have not dealt well with the land. 
they have done very primitive in, in their dealings with the land. It's been a very subsistence type agriculture mostly that's been carried on there. And it's only today that, quote, the desert is blooming like the rose as the Israelis have come up with scientific methods of growing even in uh, crops, even, even in the desert. Verses 11 and 12 of this passage of Scripture I think have to be viewed as being also hyperbole in some sense, kind of an exaggeration made to, to make a point. Obviously no one, I, I mean you read that, that verse in the uh, latter part of verse 11, it says, he washes his garments in wine. I mean who's going to wash his clothes in wine? Oh, I mean, nobody's going to do that. So, so what are we talking about here? What is the reference here? Well, the probable interpretation is that wine was to be as common as water. An abundance of wine, of course, meant wealth, prosperity. Wine was one of the symbols, along with milk and honey and this kind of thing. Symbols of, of abundance and prosperity as you read through the Old Testament. So, it's like saying one could wash his clothes in wine as well as water. Today it would be like the guy who lights his cigar with a $20 bill because he's so wealthy. You know, it's kind of displaying your, your wealth. No big deal. Wash my clothes in wine, wash it in water. What's the difference? All the same to me. You know, I can afford lots of wine. Or it also, of course, can mean that grapes were so abundant that the grape crushers were working at it and the grapes were so deep that they just were splashed from head to toe. Judah was a good land for growing grapes. The earliest reference to this is in Numbers, chapter 13, verse 23. Numbers 13, 23. This is when the spies have been sent out by uh, Moses to spy out the land, to discover, you know, what the uh, land was like that they were supposed to be conquering. And uh, when they came to the valley of Eshcol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it, on a, carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and figs. I mean, the cluster of grapes they cut was so huge and heavy that they had to carry it on a pole between two men. I don't know how many of you have seen clusters like that, but the ones you buy in the store, <laughs> you can carry in the itty-bitty bag and pay ten bucks for it, you know. <laughs> These guys hauled this huge cluster of grapes out of there because this was such an abundant area. Eshcol is not far from Hebron. It's that valley that stretches north from Hebron. And this, this whole area has traditionally been a great area for growing, for growing grapes and thus for the production of wine. All the way from there over to the, to the, uh, the little uh, oasis at En Gedi which if you ever go to the Holy Land, be sure you don't miss En Gedi. It's a beautiful place. You can just see how David would sit there and write some of the Psalms as the waterfalls drops over the cliff into the pool and you're amongst the palm trees. Just a, a really beautiful area there at En Gedi. Last part of verse 11 is undoubtedly indicative of Hebrew poetry. Remember, Hebrew poetry has a tendency to, well, do what we read there in verse 11. He washes his robe, his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. It's sort of like you say the same thing in a little bit different words twice for reinforcement purposes. And, and certainly there is a measure to which that is true here. But there probably is a prophetic statement in this also. And his robes 
in the blood of grapes. Many feel that this refers to two persons. It refers to David and it refers to Messiah. Both, remember, are of the tribe of Judah. And David, he was the great warrior king. And David and his army shed the blood of thousands as they moved against the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Phoenicians and the various Aramaic peoples. Battle after battle was fought and blood was shed as the nations were conquered. But then also it's a picture of Messiah. Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this that comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garment, garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress, the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod, trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. And I looked and there was no one to help. And I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Sounds pretty gory. Sounds pretty gross. If you turn, we, we won't turn it back to that uh, Revelation 19 passage again, because we just read it a few moments ago. But it, there again, it talks about the Messiah returning in the great white horse. The scripture says there that he treads the wine press of the fierce anger of God Almighty. Now to try to literally interpret God crushing people as the wine presser crushes grapes is of course to, to create a vision in our minds that's repulsive. But what we do need to understand is that God is not playing games and God is serious. And, and that we live in a world of lost people. And if they don't know Christ, they will die in their sin and go to eternal hell. Now that's, I mean, that, that kind of, what, that statement I just made is, is verboten in many, evan not, not evangelical, but many mainline churches today. Oh, they would never say anything like that because after all, what kind of a God is that? How can a God be a God of love if he demands justice? That's total misinterpretation of the meaning of the word love. E even within the human framework, we have come up in recent years with the concept of tough love. You know, sometimes you have to do the hard thing to, to show love towards someone, where other person would say, oh, you poor little one, you know, we just got to be sure that everything is hunky-dory for you, rather than making people sometimes stand up and do what they're supposed to do or pay the consequences. We live in a society that, that really struggles with this whole issue. You know, prisons and, and reform schools and all kinds of things. How, how do you really deal with human social problems? Well, the, the biblical approach is the only approach that works. Unfortunately, there are people who have taken the biblical approach and, and driven it into the wall, you know, <coughs> stand with a hammer all the time ready to pound everybody. 
and which isn't what the scripture is teaching. I mean, there's got to be, as I said before, this balance between mercy and justice. It's got, both elements have got to be there because that's what scripture says, that's who God is. And so as we read passages like this, which sound pretty gory in, the, in Isaiah 63, for example, we have to understand that, that God does not love to see people die in their sins, nor does he love to send people to hell, but there is no option because he is a God of justice, and his justice must be fulfilled. Now, Christ has done it. And, and when you and I accept Christ's work, then God's mercy flows to us, and his justice is fulfilled because of the death of Christ. But if people reject what Christ has done and that mercy, there is no other mercy. There is no other route. There is not 14 routes to the top of the same mountain called heaven. And this route is the Buddhist route and the Shinto route and the Islamic route and, you know, whatever. There is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's the message and, and, and that's got to be understood. And, and to the extent that Jacob understood that, to the extent that Moses even understood it when he wrote these words, we don't know. I mean, you and I have the whole counsel of God. They did not. But nevertheless, it is God expressing these truths through these passages. In the 12th verse, I'd, I'd like for us to, to note, especially Genesis 49.12, where the NASB says, the New American Standard says, his eyes are dull from wine. That, that is simply uh, using the Hebrew word there in one of its more frequent renditions. But obviously, from the context here, the New International Version has more correctly interpreted it as its true meaning, where it says his eyes are darker than wine. I mean, Jacob is not here saying Judah would be a tribe of drunks. I mean, after all, just talking about the scepter being in the hands and the Messiah coming, that wouldn't fit at all with this particular passage. So Jacob is prophesying that his eyes will be as dark as white. Now, dark eyes were considered beautiful in that world of that time. And I'm not saying they're not today, <laughs> but I'm saying there was a particular focus on, on that in, in those days, particularly in contrast with white teeth. And literally here, it, it's, you know, it says, his eyes are dull from wine, teeth are white from milk. When, when the the proper interpretation would be darker than wine and whiter than milk. That's that parallelism there. And uh, it's a statement of beauty. It's a, it's a statement of glory. And that's what Jacob is referring to here. Now the land would be a land of abundant livestock and pasture. And so milk would be abundant as well as wine being abundant. So we're talking about abundance. We're talking about beauty. We're talking about power. Jacob has no negative things to say about Judah. And that's really amazing, isn't it? From what we have discovered in our study through the book of Genesis about this man, Judah. He's been a very enigmatic character. Good things have come as time has passed. But you look at him early on and you think, boy, this guy's a jerk, you know. But we have to be blessed by the fact that God does not look on the outward appearance of a man, but looks on the inward man. Verse 13. Genesis 49, 13. Zebulon shall dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards 
Seiden. There's a little bit of a strange thing here, and there's no explanation as to why Jacob at this point is slightly out of order. <laughs> Whether his sons got mixed up, or he got mixed up, or what. But he is speaking of his sixth son, born to his wife Leah, before his fifth son. And basically he's been speaking of them now in chronological order up to this point. You know, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. At this point we should be Issachar, but instead he goes to Zebulon. And there is no explanation. This whole verse, in fact, is rather mysterious. Not mysterious because the words aren't clear, because we read it, the words are very clear. Oh, seems to put a picture in our mind. We seem to have good understanding. But in the light of history, the meaning is enigmatic. The passage appears to predict the future location and occupation of Zebulon. You're going to be here, and this is what you're going to do. The idea seems to be that Zebion would be settled on the Mediterranean Sea coast immediately south of the nation of Phoenicia. Sidon, Tyre and Sidon were, were the principal cities of Phoenicia and often when you see Tyre or Sidon given as the term, it, it means the country of Phoenicia, the country of the Phoenicians, the inventors of the alphabet. This would give Zebulon a very wonderful place along the coast and would give to Zebulon the only significant natural harbor along the coast of Israel at Haifa. The mystery, though, comes in what we understand of history. Uh, we aren't going to turn to Joshua chapter 19, but in Joshua chapter 19 it describes where the tribes were to settle. And it describes the border. It says the border goes from here to here to here to here. And as we read that and study where the tribes apparently were located after the conquest, we discover that Zebulon is described as being between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. So we can kind of picture that, between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. But then it goes on to describe Asher, the tribe of Asher, as being between Zebulon and the actual coast. That's where the problem comes in. Because how can Zebulon be a haven for ships and his flank be towards Sidon if Asher is between Zebulon and the coast? Well, it's, it's, as I say, it's, it's a problem of understanding. And I think it's probably a problem of our understanding the geography as it's laid out by Joshua. Probably that's where the problem comes in, not here in Jacob's prophecy. It's, it's very probable that Zebulun must have had a piece of the coast, even though it doesn't sound like it, in Joshua. Moses had some words to say in Deuteronomy chapter 33 relative to Zebulun and Issachar. Moses giving his final blessing before his death. Sort of a parallel to Jacob here. And of Zebulun he said... Rejoice, Zebulon, in your going forth, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call peoples to the mountain. There they shall offer righteous sacrifices. For they shall draw out the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasure of the sand. Now, we need to balance our understanding of Scripture. There are some who take every single word in Scripture and interpret it absolutely literally. And there are many passages in Scripture which are obviously not to be interpreted literally. 
Then there are those who go to the other extreme and interpret everything in a spiritual way and nothing literally. We humans are a weird lot, aren't we? You know? We're either in one extreme or the other or somewhere on the gamut in between. And some people would like to say, well, we need to find a happy medium. Well, actually, that spiritually is probably not a real good idea to find a medium of any sort, you know. Uh, we need to find uh, <laughs> an appropriate understanding of Scripture. Good hermeneutics, I suppose, would be the uh, proper way of, of looking at it here. But what I'm saying, you probably heard several years ago that there was somebody from the United States who had took this passage where it says, and hidden treasures in the sand, so literally, that he went over there to Israel and spent millions of dollars, sold stocks here in the United States in an oil company, went over there and spent millions of dollars to drill a hole, which of course is a dry well. But he says, hidden treasures of the sand, what could that be but oil? You know, because another place talks about Asher being a land that flows with oil. Well, the scripture doesn't talk about petroleum. It's talking about olive oil. Now, if you can strike olive oil by drilling a well, you're doing something a little unusual. And probably that wouldn't be that great a benefit. But, uh, you know, there, that, that's an extreme. You don't want to look at a passage of scripture like that and go to that literal extent. But we still at the same time have to understand that there's something about a mountain, something about a sea here. And so... Zebulon and Issachar and Asher, somehow those three tribal nations interrelated in such a way that apparently at least two of them had some seacoast, whether it's a small strip through or whatever it was. Whatever the case was, Zebulon would possess a portion of Canaan that was favorable to agriculture and to trade. Politically, Zebulon would contribute only one leader and that was the judge Elon. And if you read through the book of Judges, you'll come to him. He's the 11th of the judges who ruled for 10 years. Verse 14, Genesis 49, 14. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Well, that sounds like a really wonderful description of your son, right? You're a strong, literally, ass is the word there. Now, here we have the fifth son. The fifth son by Leah being described after the sixth son already is. And this is not a particularly good portrait here of this young man. Now, we know nothing about him individually. In fact, what we know about the sons of Jacob, other than Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and uh, Judah, and Joseph, the other seven, we only know about them really collectively before we get to this passage. They're kind of all together, and they sort of do things together, it seems, and we can't point out an individual, one, as doing this or that, or having this attitude or this uh, attribute. So, we, we don't really know much about this man, Issachar. But in this passage, he's described as a strong, sturdily built onager, which was actually not a bad thing to say about your son. Because the onager, the, the wild donkey, was considered to be a very brave and strong and desirable beast. So it's not necessarily a demeaning statement at all at this point. Apparently, Issachar would grow up 
uh, that is, the tribe would develop into a strong tribe, physically, uh, militarily. And this would be particularly true during the period of the Judges. Uh, Judges chapter 5, verse 15. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels, among the divisions of Reuben. They were great resolves of heart. That's part of the song of Deborah and Barak. Deborah and Barak were two of the great judges, and both of them were of the tribe of Issachar. And uh, most of us realize that Deborah was the only female judge. And she was a female judge largely because Barak refused to carry his load alone. And therefore, she became co-equal with him in this judgeship. Later, a judge by the name of Tola would also come from the tribe of Issachar. Now, the, the first phrase of, of verse 14 seems to portray laziness. It says, lying down between the sheepfolds. Now, the word translated sheepfolds, a bit of a mysterious word, and in various translations, it's, tra it's translated saddlebags or ash heaps. So it, it doesn't really matter what it is he's lying amongst. The idea is that he's lying down on the job. That's the idea here. Now, I, I don't know if you can portray the Holy Land, and I, I probably should have given you a map or brought one, but you probably have one back of your Bible, but if you can portray the Holy Land, Immediately in from the coast, opposite Mount Carmel, to the east, is this large valley. Well, it's large for Canaan. It'd be small for us, you know. I mean, we're used to the great Central Valley, California, which is, you know, many, many thousands of square miles. I mean, you put Israel into the great Central Valley of, of California many times over, the whole country. But there's this valley. It's called the ba Valley of Jezreel. It's also called the Plain of Megiddo next to the hill of Megiddo, or Harmageddon. Anyway, in this valley, you have the finest land in all Israel. This particular valley of Jezreel is the most fertile portion of the whole land and has been the breadbasket of Palestine from time immemorial. Today, if you stand on the top of Mount Carmel and you look out into the valley of Jezreel, you see this beautiful, fertile land where water is quite evident down there. You can see it standing in places. But a sign of the modern times is in the middle of that valley is an Israeli airfield off of which jet fighters into the atmosphere. And you're observing the, the land of old and a jet fighter goes vroom over your head. It's really kind of a great contrast in the two. The idea is that Issachar didn't have to work hard to be well-fed. He had the finest part of the whole land. And what the scripture seems to be saying that he wasn't willing to fight for his liberty if it was threatened, if that in any way would jeopardize his possessions. This was the attitude Israel had as they were coming out of Egypt and going to the Holy Land. They got out in the desert and after a while they said, wow, I sure wished I had a a bowl of garlic leeks, leeks and, and a flesh pot. Oh. Sound all that great to me, but I guess it was very good for them. And, you know, the desert didn't offer a whole lot of comfort. And so they began to desire that which they had back in Egypt, although it meant slavery 
In the wilderness they were free. In Egypt they were enslaved. You know, there are some people today who will say, people will give anything for their liberty. Not so. Most people will not give up comfort for liberty if, the, if those are two opposing options. If they can't have liberty and comfort, then they're willing to sacrifice the liberty if they can keep the comfort. That's human nature. And, and that happens over and over again, and Israel is a, is a great example about the, uh, for that. Physical comfort is paramount to, to most human beings. We'll sacrifice almost anything to keep adequate food, adequate clothing, and adequate, adequate shelter. And you know, that's the very attitude that will open the door for Antichrist. Some people think, how in the world could Antichrist ever come? I mean, who's so stupid to let this dictatorial monster control them? Oh, well, it's not so incredible as we might think. Let me just read quickly here. We're running out of time. Revelation 13, verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has a mark either in the, of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast and the number of that man and his number, the number of that man and his number is 666. And of course, people have been trying to calculate that all through history. But the point is, you couldn't buy or sell, you couldn't live in the world without the mark. So people will take the mark so that they might live because they have no reason to seek otherwise. There are different kinds of laziness. Iskar was willing to be a slave and work in forced labor if he could keep his pleasant land. Laziness is an insidious sin of Christianity or within Christianity. You and I are tempted even today to trust in material possessions and provisions rather than in God. We're tempted not to risk job, fame, fortune, if in any way we'll lose it if we stand up for what's right, if we oppose the world. Jesus warned us the, will, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and, and the flesh will fail. Let me, let me just close with the passage there that Paul speaks of concerning spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is, of course, something we all face, some to a greater extent than, than others it may seem. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the pulling down Whoops, I'm reading another translation in there. For the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We don't war according to the flesh. And the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. There are people who claim to be Christians who are doing things today who need to hear that and need to understand that. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are of the Spirit. We must bring every thought captive to Christ. Deny ourselves the flesh pots of the world that we might have liberty in Christ. Next week, we'll pick up with Dan. Dan is a very, very interesting person. Well, the, the tribe is a very interesting tribe. The only tribe to be split into geographically separate regions that had no contact with each other, no, no land borders common. 
And of course, today, the area of Dan in the north is one of the most beautiful places in all of the Holy Land. 